Thanks so much, Greg Host and the Enviro Show it is next. And how wonderful to hear about that award from the World Wildlife Fund for the Minister of Environmental Affairs, the Gift of the Earth Award for the, the work that she's been doing on marine conservation. How wonderful. A round of applause from the Enviro Show team as well. Really nice. Well, I'm Nancy Richards and uh, I'm being driven tonight by Rob Parkin and fueled by you. And if you'd like to join us, you're welcome. The number is 0892102010. If there's anything that piques your interest that you'd like to share with, do it, do it. Well, let me show, tell you what we've got lined up for the show tonight. Going to be talking first to the founder of an organic community, I think you might call, in the Free State. We're going to be hearing about his philosophy and what, we're, what they're doing there at um, Memel Organics. That's uh, Stephen Ablondi. He's all the way from the States. Interesting to hear what he's got to say. Going to be hearing then uh, more about the rather more of the more urban waste summit that's happening in Johannesburg next week. Uh, we'll be chatting to the MD of Pick It Up. She's Desiree Nchingila. And also on waste, talking to a wastewater specialist, Professor George Ekema, who was recently awarded the Order of Mapungubwe in silver for the work that he's been doing for nearly 30 years, possibly even more. After that, we'll be chatting to Camilla Howard, who is she of the very sore feet, part of the duo who did the epic 3,000-kilometre trek for trash right across the country. We'll be finding out what they learnt, what they raised, and, and maybe what's next. And finally, towards the end of the show, in our green goodie slot, what if trees could talk? We'll be chatting to the author of a book of that name. And don't forget, if you'd like to share with us anything that you've been up to in green terms, or if there's anything that you'd like to know about that we can find out for you, let us know. We're at uh, the Enviro Show at safm. No, sorry, it's Enviro at safm.co.za. The Facebook page is the Enviro Show on SAFM. That's what we've got lined up. Stay with us. This is SAFM. Yay. It is indeed SAFM, and this is the green slot on the on SAFM. It's uh, the Enviro Show. And first up tonight, here in South Africa, all the way from the United States, Stephen Ablondi and his wife Cindy were asked a little while ago to submit papers on the work that they do at Memel Organics in the Free State for an environmental award, stating how they are meeting South Africa's Millennium Development Goals. Well, their reply was that if all businesses ran like theirs, there would be no need for any Millennium Development Goals because we would be there already. Well, Memel Organics, it's a... It, I've been calling it a community, but it's more of a way of life. It, it's in the free state, and we have Stephen in our Joburg studio. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Nancy. It's a privilege to live here in South Africa in the free Good. state, and it's a privilege to be on your program. Well, Thank I, you. I'm, I'm, I would like to suggest that we're pretty privileged to, to have you because it seems like you're doing some pretty good stuff there. Now, just explain to us, um, Memel, it's it's a little town, it's a community. What is it? Well, Memel. Memel, sorry. Memel. Uh, is an old-fashioned kind of dorp town in the Platteland of South Africa, and it has a vibrant farming community, but the town itself kind of fell apart a little bit a while ago because of the motor car. People didn't any longer need to have houses to go to church for the weekend and the way that most South African communities evolved. So we found a, a spot that uh, people didn't really care much about the properties anymore, and we went there and bought quite a few of them. We were uh, very attracted to the local bird life. We were attracted to the old-fashioned architecture, to the beauty, to the crime-free environment. And um, we've been building there for 10 years. And uh, every year we get more excited, and every year we expand our plans and bring more people into our community, as you call it. Um, you've been building in a very special way. 
We have. You're not just throwing up glass and concrete slabs. It's true. We call it natural building. Mm. Um, we are using uh, local materials, mostly sand and clay. We're building what's called rammed earth. Uh, we erect forms very precisely, and then we put this material into the forms, and we ram it with local labor, and we come up with aesthetically beautiful walls that are fantastic for... Um, for holding the warmth of the day and releasing it into the night. Um, it's a very comfortable way to live and it's a very beautiful way to live and it does not harm the environment building these homes. And, and I guess in this particular instance, it's creating sort of job creation as well. And that has become one of our big priorities. Uh, we talk to a lot of people about how, um, you know, we're, we're working on all levels of the construction industry. Um, we're offering really expensive homes to people on dramatic farms. We're building uh, co-housing communities for the middle class inside of Miamal, which is our favorite activity. What, what, what do you mean by co-housing? Co-housing is a concept that originated in Scandinavia to try to uh, reduce the isolation that most people have in a suburban setting. Uh, the idea came to America about 20 years ago, and the first community was constructed in California. And now there are 300 communities, either in construction or people have been living in them for up to 20 years. And I'm on the board of that organization. And we try to promote a way of living where people can manage their own community, where people have all the privacy they ever need when they want it, and they have access to a lot of social interaction when they feel that's beneficial to them. Are people buying into the concept? I mean, are they coming from elsewhere in the country to be there specifically for the kind of community that you're creating? Well, we are about to market the co-housing community. We, we haven't marketed up until now. Up until now, we've brought people who are simply interested in the town. We have some very um, interesting people from overseas, a British military intelligence officer, uh, natural builder from America who's a filmmaker and engineer. We have quite a few musicians from Pretoria. Mel Butis has a farm. Matthias Roots has a farm. Uh, quite a few interesting people are coming down and the place has changed dramatically in the 10 years since I was there. And um, you know, there's been a bit of a property lull for the past four or five years, but this year we're launching a community. We've already constructed our common house that's the center of any co-housing community. And it allows people to get together, to cook, to uh, have a meal when they want to have a meal, to have a cinema room and watch a movie together or the news, sit on the veranda, watch the sunset or watch the sunrise in the morning and have some coffee. Or they can go back to their own cottage. So they have privacy when they want it and they have community when they want it. And it's a way of kind of not having to live behind a high wall. I suppose some people are, are sort of brought together because they want to be and some people are brought together because they have no choice. And I know that you're working with the Zamani Township, which is nearby, working at building houses for those people too, because one of the points you make is that the, um, the, the sort of houses that you're describing with rammed earth are so much warmer, sort of more earth-friendly perhaps than the, the tin shacks that some people are living in. Well, there's nothing more tragic than anyone living in a tin shack anywhere, but if it could be more tragic, it would be up on the shoulders of the Drakensberg Mountains where we have 60 consecutive nights each winter where the temperatures drop below freezing. Um, so what we're trying to do is offer an alternative model 
Um, instead of hiring a contractor to come in and build RDP houses, which they don't build enough of quickly enough, um, and all the money going to a big contractor in Tang, we're showing how you can collect local soil, you can pay local workers, you can make beautiful homes incorporating some of the concepts from co-housing and many of the concepts from natural building and permaculture, and you can offer these homes at a, at a fair value to people and they can live together in a community. They can feel good about uh, how they're living and they can be comfortable. We think it's very important there. Is it sustainable, the, the rammed earth style of building? I mean, you say you're using local soil. I, I suppose it's sort of something similar to cobbing cob houses, but not, not entirely. But is there enough soil? Can one keep on building like this? Well, it is very similar to cob. It is very similar to some of the traditional building methods that uh, rural people in South Africa have been using for hundreds of years. Um, it is sustainable because if you think about it, bricks come from soil as well. They yeah. just come from a gigantic quarry that you don't usually see. So we're taking some of the local soil and turning it into local houses instead of paying the people in Tang to make the bricks instead of using up all the energy that it takes to make bricks instead of using all the diesel fuel that it takes to transport the bricks down to our part of the country all these things instead of sending our money to Tang or to oil producing nations in the Middle East we are putting in the pockets of local semi-skilled workers and all you have to do to create that is have one or two people who have enough precision in their carpentry to erect these forms and allow these people to build the homes. I think it's not just about the actual um, the, the structure of the homes themselves. I think that you're, you're looking at things like solar showers, biodigesters, cooking fuel made from human waste. Absolutely. And, you know, we've, um, we understand that there are something like 40 million of these units being used in China. Um, my wife and I have seen them in the refugee camps in Uganda where uh, they have these biodigesters, they have communal toilets, and uh, they have communal cooking facilities, and they have what look like old-fashioned Bunsen burners in a laboratory, and people can cook beans and they can cook meals off of the methane that is uh, produced by these digesters. We have seen it in action. I've seen it in Rwanda in urban settings for individual houses. Um, why this is not a common technology, I don't know, but we're actually setting it up for this micro-community, the first one in Zamani, we're, we are building five houses in a small co-housing community. They're all oriented to the equator so they get lots of natural sunlight. They're going to be fenced in nicely so that children can run around in the yards and dogs and cows have to stay out. Um, we're going to collect the waste from these houses and we're going to create free cooking gas for these people. And we expect that by living in close proximity in comfortable houses and getting together for their meals having access to a hot shower people in townships here don't have access to hot showers we think that this is going to radically improve their caliber of life and we have a whole team of international designers who have made a lot of money building for rich people elsewhere in the world and now they're turning their efforts toward trying to build for needy people here in south africa mm -hmm. I have to say all this and uh, and the permaculture and the gardens that you are are working on as well it all makes it sound like a sort of green utopia is it what are the challenges Stephen? oh there's tremendous challenges and um, you know we've had our difficulties like everybody else but people in South Africa want to hear about success stories and you know our biggest success story is that my wife and I can leave the country for a number of months 
We can give detailed instructions to our two foremen, uh, Bright Merico and Ted Morgwazi from uh, Zimbabwe. And we come back five months later and we walk around the gardens and we look at everything that we asked them to do in our absence and all of it has done perfectly. We've got about 15 South Africans working under them. Uh, we've got a real team spirit. And I don't hear many people in South Africa talking about how they can leave their workers alone and they do great work on their own. But we've achieved that there. And uh, it's a fantastic uh, community, both for the workers and for our visitors and for the people who want to move down and retire there or have a holiday home for the weekends. And, and just going back to the permaculture aspect and the, the fact that you're called Mimol Organics, mm -hmm. you, are you growing, well, permaculture, I suppose it sort of implies that it's organic. Is that working? What's the soil like? Is everybody on board with it? It's working fantastically. Um, I've had a little bit of help from the city, from Pretoria. Teresa Boyson, who's the, uh, the wife of the former CEO of ABSA Bank, has helped me start what's called community-supported agriculture. And there's about 20 women in Pretoria who are ready to buy our products every week. We don't give them a choice what they buy. We simply give them what's ready to harvest. We give them a gigantic box that has never had less than 15 different variety of vegetables in it. And it's a good way for us to raise money for our workers and pay our staff. And it gives us the opportunity to then give away some of our food to the creches, to the orphanages that are there. It's really important that we get some of the money from the city to do that. Uh, we've been able to grow a wonderful variety of vegetables and it wasn't easy. Uh, we had to treat our soil for three consecutive years with compost. We have directed water harvesting into the permaculture gardens. We collect the rainwater that comes by in the streets. We divert it into the property. That is very contrary to most uh, uh, engineers and architects' wishes. They try to get water away from the property as quickly as possible, but we bring it in. We bring it through a series of trenches and soak pits, and it generally keeps the garden moist. It's not irrigation. It just generally keeps the garden moist. Then we also collect rainwater off of the rooftops. We have many of what you know are usually called JoJo tanks, so mm. we have tens of thousands of liters of capacity and those are those have underground piping that reach taps throughout the gardens and the orchards so our workers at any point can just uh, fill up a watering can or they can hook up a hose and they spot water the plants and so they don't use any more water than is necessary um, everything is done by hand and that's our philosophy that if you can do it by hand in a country that has uh, the terrible unemployment problems that south africa has you should do it by hand and it nice it works Stephen just lastly we're going to be talking about waste in just a minute and, and waste water as well I'm sure that there's not a lot that goes to waste um, uh, I'm sure there's not a lot that goes to waste at Memo but do you have a do you have a sort of a waste strategy uh, nothing goes to waste mm. um, we have strategies for gray water to bring to uh, orchards and to plantings on the perimeter of our property um, on our most environmentally sensitive areas we don't even want to have any black water. We don't want to treat human waste. We've been, uh, we've been using compost toilets, which some people think are a big throwback to the past. But as a demonstration, my wife and I have been using them on our little farmhouse. So we compost the human waste in sawdust and in topsoil. And in a couple of months, it's uh, completely treated and it could be used uh, in the garden if you wished. Most people are squeamish, so they don't use it for vegetables, but I think it'd be perfectly appropriate for it. We use it for trees. Hmm. 
So the no stone unturned, no no problem, uh, insoluble. Just very briefly and lastly, why South Africa? Uh, we came here by mistake. Uh, we've worked oh. in 12 <laughs> different countries around the world doing refugee work and uh, human rights work. And it was those, one of those serendipitous occasions. We came here without having any expectations. And even after we left working here, we kept returning from Rwanda and from Geneva. And we fell absolutely in love with the country. We fell in love with the people. We thought that there were interesting problems here that could be solved. And we wanted to be part of that. And it's been a great decision. We're very, very, very happy with it. Gosh, oh, what an interesting story. Stephen, if anybody would like to know more, have you got a website or can I just refer people to your email address? You can refer people to my email address and we have just established a website. It's okay. Miamal Organics, one word, miamalorganics.com. And we're starting to put some movies and some newspaper articles that we've had written about us on it. And it's going to be an interesting website. Brilliant. Lovely. Well, thanks very much. Let me repeat the details. And Stephen, go well and enjoy yourself in your nest there at Mimal. It sounds lovely. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Thank Take you care. very much. Pleasure. Stephen Ablondi and uh, together with his wife, Cindy, they're there at Mimal in the Eastern Free State. And if you'd like to check it out, have a look at the site. It's Mimal Organics. That's M-E-M-E-L organics.com. Mimal organics.com. And the email address is Mimal organics at gmail.com. SAFM interacts on every level. Visit our website at safm.co.za, follow us on Twitter at SAFM Radio, or simply like our Facebook page, SAFM Radio. Let's have the conversation. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. And here on the Enviro Show here on SAFM, it's interesting to hear how people live. And it's, it's, it's happening increasingly all over the country. There are sort of small communities, sort of green-minded communities where people are doing all sorts of things. And it, it's kind of catching. You know, if you get one person who's doing something that's really successful, it's amazing how other people tune into it. And if you'd like to let us know what you're up to in your part of the world, it's uh, enviro at safm.co.za. Or you can pop me a mail. I'm richardsn at safm.co.za. Well, interesting to hear how Mimal organises its waste, but coming up in Johannesburg next week at the Santon Convention Centre is the Johannesburg Waste Summit, which uh, sounds to me like it's going to be a very busy place. And I think the goal is to bring together all the stakeholders to ensure that the city's got some sort of workable, sustainable, successful strategy to handle all their waste. Well, we have on the line MD of Pick It Up. She's Desiree Nchengila. Hi, Desiree. Hi, good evening, uh, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. Um, MD of Pick It Up, what I imagine you've, you've pretty much got a bit of a grip on what's going on right throughout Johannesburg in terms of, uh, in terms of waste. But what part are you playing in the Waste Summit? Um, first of all, thank you so much for giving me that promotion as the MD of uh, Pick It Up. Oh. <laughs> I'm currently the General Manager of Communications and Stakeholder Management. Um, together with the City of Johannesburg, obviously Pick It Up is bringing together the um, Waste Summit that is will be happening in Johannesburg, as you've mentioned, on the 15th and 16th of May next week. Um, the idea is to basically to bring all the stakeholders together mm. and share the waste strategy for the city and how we can best um, create um, um, less waste, which is then taken to landfills. So there's a lot of host of stakeholders we are hoping to attract for the summit. Okay, I'm so sorry about the promotion, but I'm sure it's only a matter of time. <laughs> Thank you. So, so the idea being to create less, it's not so much what we do with it, it's just can we please try and create less of it. When you say all the stakeholders, who are you inviting? The, the regular public um, big business? Who? Yes. 
Definitely, we, we, we're really appealing to our communities in the city of Johannesburg to partake in this um, business uh, in terms of the waste uh, fraternity and as well as academics, politicians, NGOs and co-ops that are obviously formed in order to create the separation at source programs where people are recycling some of their waste. So it is open to the entire public. I suppose everybody likes to join in on something that's already being seen to be successful. I mean, pick it up, for instance, have you got a strategy yourselves? I mean, do do you involve just your own company or have you got other people on board? We we definitely do have other role players that are on board and other role players who will be partaking in the program. The the idea as well is to share the city of Johannesburg and pick it up's waste uh, strategy um, going forward, and and obviously trying to engage other uh, stakeholders to input in what that strategy will be. We'll also be joined by the Plastic SA, E Waste, NAMPAC, and the Glass Recycling uh, Company, um, just to name but a few. So. There are other role players in the waste uh, management fraternity who will be joining in to, to, to actually formulate this strategy and ensure that stakeholders own it going forward. Without necessarily naming any names or sort of naming and shaming people, who or what are the biggest waste culprits, uh, you, you know, either companies or what, or what product is the biggest weight. Do you remember some while ago um, we, we talked about the plastic bags that were floating around the countryside being like the national flower. What is the biggest problem in the city of Johannesburg? The biggest problem for the city of Johannesburg is illegal dumping. Mm. Where, you know, and, and, and this is, usually, you know, at, at best, the culprits are on both sides of the commercial side from from uh, builders' uh, rubble and as well as uh, communities themselves uh, where they just find a spot where it becomes a place where all the waste is dumped there. And this is something Pick It Up will come in and collect and clean up. Within a matter of days, we are literally back to uh, uh, basics in terms of having that, that waste back there. So these are the challenges that we are facing and trying to educate our communities through the different programs we have that, you know, illegal dumping is just really not making our city look as good as it should be. You know, we spoke the other day on the program about uh, the illegal dumping of, of toxic materials and uh, medical waste and that sort of thing. And you think to yourself, why? Is it, are people dumping illegally out of uh, laziness? Is it that there are not enough places where they can dump their stuff? Or what is the problem? Why is it happening? I think really from where I'm sitting at, it's it's an issue of people not just laziness and not wanting to do what is right. Uh, even our motorists, from time to time, you will see people tossing their rubbish out of their windows. Um, and, and it's something that we need to look at. And the summit will actually bring these kind of issues to the table to say, how do we address it? How do we maybe legalize the, 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 the finding, you know, where we find people for doing this or, or take the relevant measures to ensure that this doesn't continue anymore. So in terms of the summit, these are the things we want to ensure that we will be addressing and ensure that uh, communities also bring up those strategic suggestions that would assist uh, Pick It Up and the city going forward. What, you know, I'm thinking one of the biggest problems, as I understand it, that the country faces, in fact, the world faces, is what to do with old tyres in terms of illegal dumping. That's a biggie. Will that be part of it as well? 
it will definitely be part of it. And one of the key things we'll be looking as well into is is is, is basically day one will focus on recyclables. How do we recycle all the material? How do we separate and source our glass, our paper, and our plastics? But the day two will also focus on turning waste into energy. So there is a case study that has been quite successful where waste is being uh, converted into electricity. So that is also one of the strategies through our waste minimization strategy that we are exploring as Pick It Up. Um, and that is what we want to share during the summit with, with our stakeholders on the day. Are you encouraging sort of small suppliers? You know, there are, there are a lot of people doing all sorts of things on a fairly small scale. One wants to sort of fan those flames or sort of encourage that. Is that, is that part of what you're hoping to do as well? Yes, we definitely want to encourage, I mean, uh, individuals, small co-ops, uh, groups of people within communities who are already collecting. As we know, we do have pickers who do that as well. But we, we're trying to educate our society that one of the things that was deemed rubbish is can actually become a valuable asset now because it makes it easier as well, not only for Pick It Up as a waste management company, but we also save the landfill space. So we, we're definitely encouraging people to actually view and see their waste from a different light. It's no longer just rubbish. It has value. It has monetary value. Um, if you come and bring it into some of our buyback depots, you can actually um, uh, create employment. The word you use there was rubbish. You know, it's quite a tough. It's quite a tough job to uh, to make a bunch of old rubbish seem appealing. Are you yeah. hoping to get l- l- the regular public to come in? And if they do, are they are they going to have fun? Are they going to be turned on by what they see? We, we're hoping they will be turned on by, by what they see. The, the program we, we have is quite robust and very interactive. Um, we've got some exhibitions that will be uh, displayed for, for, for people to educate and teach them in terms of what they can really do, going back to basics, especially in their household. So it is open to the to, to public. Um, if I may, should there be interest for people to, to actually attend, they can contact this uh, telephone number, which okay. is 011 784 0602 okay. um, and ask to speak to Yolandi to ensure that they are put onto the guest list. Okay, they can't just turn up at the door. Um, ideally, we would like to control okay. that, but it is really open to the public. Yeah. There is no entrance fee. Excellent. Well, Desiree, very best of luck, and I hope it's fun. <laughs> and I hope, and I hope <laughs> yes, there's a lot of education going on, and next time we speak, maybe you will be MD. Okay, thank great. you. Thank Thanks you so much, right, Take You're care. Busy. General Manager of Communications of Pick It Up, that's Desiree Nchingila. And if you'd like to know a little bit more, the Johannesburg Waste Summit is happening on the 15th and 16th at Santon Convention Centre. Rather than just turn up, phone Yolandi on 011 784 0602. 011 784 0602. This is SAFM. Yay. We're here on the Enviro Show on the subject of waste. Next, uh, waste water. Professor George Ikamar is from University of Cape Town. He's from their Faculty of Engineering and the Built Environment. And uh, he's a very widely acknowledged specialist and researcher in the wastewater business. He gives courses locally, internationally. He's been working in the wastewater biz since the uh, 1970s. And he's been awarded twice by the Water Institute of Southern Africa. And he's published over 170 papers on the subject. So if there's anything to know about wastewater, I would imagine he's the go-to man. And he was recently awarded the Order of Mapungubwe in Silver by President Jacob Zuma. And we have him on the line. Hi, Professor. 
Uh, good evening. Nice good to have evening. you with us. And congratulations. That's quite a long history of, of accolades um, in, in the water, wastewater business. Um, yes, I have the, the privilege of working with dedicated and committed students. So um, together we, we try and do things that haven't been done before and explore things in a laboratory, which is, uh, which is a great challenge, but also great fun. Yeah, I see that you supervise something like 43 master's students, 24 PhD students, and a whole lot more. So certainly in terms of education, you're passing on a lot of the knowledge. But I'm just thinking that when you started back in the 70s, wastewater would have been a very different problem. How, what was it like then, and well, how is it now? Um, well, in, in, in the 1970s, um, there was a, a man by the name of Dr. Gerry Stander. He was the director of the uh, National Institute of Water Research of the CSIR at the time. And he left the CSIR and started um, under the aegis of uh, the Department of Water Affairs, uh, an organization that still exists today called the Water Research Commission. And his idea at that time was because nitrogen could be removed biologically but not phosphorus from municipal wastewater, and so phosphorus was needed to be removed chemically. But because of the already then in those days the very high reuse, indirect reuse of water in the, in the Gauteng area, the plan was uh, to treat the wastewater and recycle it and reclaim it completely without letting the water return to the environment, as they have been doing in Vintuk since uh, the early 70s. And so a lot of the technology of water reclamation was developed in those early 70s years. But at around about the same time, um, ourselves at the University of Cape Town, the CSIR in Pretoria, and um, people of the then uh, Johannesburg City Council working with large-scale plants, um, stumbled upon some uh, a process that could uh, biologically remove the phosphorus. So for the first time it became possible to uh, return the wastewater treatment plant effluent to the rivers without increasing what was called the salination problem, that is the buildup of salt concentrations through the use of water. And uh, the buildup would, of course, intensify because of the indirect reuse of the water through um, the, the uh, reticulation systems. Now, I may just say that South Africa is, a, is an unusual place in the sense that uh, we have 50% uh, of our gross domestic product is generated in a highly industrialized area of Gauteng on the high felt. And that high felt area is the, the headwaters of the three main drainage basins of uh, South Africa the Orange River to the west and the uh, Limpopo and Olifants Rivers to the east. So any pollution that is generated in that uh, industrialized area has an impact on the entire river reach, including, of course, irrigation and agriculture, which generally takes place further downstream from the headwaters. So we've mm. always had to be extremely careful what we did with wastewater and have been very committed to doing good wastewater treatment right from the 1960s um, in South Africa. Yeah. And um, so, so the Water Research Commission, when it was started, it fostered um, really good uh, research projects 
that uh, have been supported at a number of different universities in the country yeah. and have resulted in the support of these students who've, who've, who've done a lot of the groundbreaking work in this particular area. So, so it sounds like we've you know, got a very good grounding in terms of water, wa- water waste management or wastewater management, but you know, I can't help feeling that there must be an even greater urgency now, now that we have, we, uh, we have shrinking resources of water, which means that it's even more important that we treat more wastewater, and it's even more important that we don't waste water, if you know what I mean. So, yes. so whilst we, we, we can't rest on our laurels, can we? Because it's no, no, South Africa has, uh, has, has a very large population when compared with the volume of water that flows down the rivers. For example, I mean, I don't know if you can picture a cubic kilometer, that's like a cube with a kilometer high, wide and long, and the annual rain runoff of South Africa's rivers is about 54 cubic kilometers per annum. And um, we can exploit probably between about 35 cubic kilometers, and we are rapidly approaching that maximum exploitable water supply in South Africa. And many catchments, are, for example, the Vaal catchment, the water consumption of the Vaal is far greater than what the Vaal can supply, sure. which is why we have these interbasin transfers like the Lesotho Highlands Water Scheme, which brings water to the Gauteng area, water is diverted from the Tugela on the, uh, via the Stackfontein Dam to go into the Vaal River. So, um, yes, we, we, we have to move the water around the country in, in a lot of different water schemes in order to get maximum benefit yes. from, uh, from the little water that we have. The, the, one of the things about water is that, firstly, we all kind of tend to take it for granted because it's always been there and we always assume that we'll, it will always be there. But also, it's, it, it's not a very high-profile situation. A lot of people are more concerned about housing, about, uh, about roads, about transport, transport, health, education, all those sort of things and somehow water is kind of at the bottom of a pile of priorities um, the, for a while that has been the case I would say um, in the sense that local authorities have have probably underfunded the water sector um, and one can understand the drivers that um, like um, health and education and housing would w- would make on, on local authority budgets. And, and because we, we've always had, for, for many, many years, since, uh, since the 1950s, we've had wastewater infrastructure, it was thought that, well, that infrastructure now needs to do the job while we pay attention to, to other important issues. Mm. And I think we let that um, drift for too long. So now we see our wastewater infrastructure in local authorities has founded uh, uh, significantly, and uh, technology that was uh, successfully operated during uh, the 1980s and 1990s uh, is now we are now struggling to to um, support the infrastructure with uh, with the necessary budgets and the necessary skills to uh, to deliver the effluent qualities that that these wastewater treatment plants can deliver. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say the fact that you've been ordered, you've been awarded the Order of Mapungubwe is an indication of the fact that it's uh, water wastewater management has not gone unnoticed. So, Professor, no, thank you. It's to government's credit that um, that an unglamorous area like the one I work in and a number of other academics around the country also 
um, uh, that 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 I should be singled out to um, out of many others who probably also. Well, equally uh, deserving of the award. It's very humble of you. Unglamorous it may be, but vital it certainly is. Professor Georgia Kama, thank you very much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you so much. Congratulations. Uh, pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. The uh, Order of Mapungubwe in Silver awarded to Professor George Ekamal there for his wastewater management. You're listening to The Enviro Show. Stay with us. Let's agree yeah. to disagree and vice versa and just get the job done, right? So we can all yeah. be singing Kumbaya month and Manta, don't argue with the customer. Don't argue. Even if he's wrong, it's like when you're in a time and Manta and then a guy with his old star steps on your toe. You don't actually just clap him, not or you say, you know what, my foot went under your foot by mistake. And then you know they won't be any fight. <laughs> Join me, Manda Shongwe, every weekday, 4 to 6 a.m. on FM as I bring you Heads Up. listening to the Enviro Show here on SAFM and don't forget uh, any questions any I can't guarantee that we're going to get the answers for you but any questions or anything that you've missed that you'd like to know more about just pop me an email it's uh, enviro at safm.co.za or to me Nancy Richards richardsn at safm.co.za Well we're continuing the story of waste which I guess is a kind of a long story here in South Africa because Michael Beretta and Camilla Howard have just walked 3,000 kilometres in the name of waste and having finally completed their seventh-month trek right across the country, collecting 7,155 kilograms of waste along the way and educating South Africa in their wake, I can only say, well done, Camilla Howard, well done. And here you all are in one piece. Thank you, Nancy. It's lovely to be back. How are you feeling? Um, When did you actually finish? Did we finish um, last Monday, so the 29th, and we finished at the Coast Bay border with all our sponsors and friends and family, and it was a wonderful weekend we had up there. Um, And we've just been adjusting. Mike went straight into a job back in Joburg, and I've only been back in Cape Town for three days, so... It's just so getting struggling with re-entry. Used to, <laughs> <used> to real life. <laughs> do, when you when you got to the end, did you think, oh, thank the Lord for that, or did you think, oh, could do no, that it was again. a lot of people asked me that in the weeks, the couple of weeks prior to finishing, and it actually felt like the right time. It didn't mm. feel too long or too short. It, it just felt right. I was wasn't too sad to finish, and I wasn't overly excited to finish. I you thought if you, if you saw one more piece of trash again, <laughs> you'd probably scream. Because you collected 7,155 kilograms of waste in seven months, which by my reckoning is something like 1,000 kilograms of waste. I'm trying to imagine, it was interesting mm-hmm. to hear George saying, try and imagine a cubic kilometre of water, and I'm trying to imagine what 1,000 kilometres yeah. of waste yeah. looks like. What, Especially what? when most of it is light plastic bottles and yeah. things that we're picking up in bottle tops. Um I think or we tried to, when we went to schools and teach the children, we used to equate it to the size of a big elephant as one ton. So if you imagine that of plastic, it's, it's a huge volume. And I mean, it's just a drop in the ocean, really, of what there was to pick up. So we really hope we've... Nonetheless, I think that. one of the, when we spoke before, one of the things that you, you were finding along the way, aside from all this rubbish, was places to dispose of it in, uh, whether it was landfills or or recycling plants. And I seem to remember that you said that 
there weren't many. No. It, it was a bit of a problem. I think we saw you just after we had finished the West Coast mm. and there was really nothing up that way. I mean, not nothing, but they were hard to find. Um, it did change going up the East Coast. In Transkei, again, it was very difficult, especially went to the schools there as well and tried to encourage recycling when they don't even have dustbins. And the roads are so bad there that the only way to get people to collect waste is to the trucks that supply the food down to the coast is to try and fill them up. So we, we did try and come up with ideas there. But yes, um, heading up towards the border of Mozambique, there are definitely more and more recycling initiatives going along. Given your sort of recent experience fairly full on, what would be your strategies? Because, you know, you, you talk about, you know, in poorer areas, there, there's nowhere for people to recycle. They probably don't have so much stuff to recycle anyway. But can you, could you think of a, a sort of strategy? If, I mean, if you were to have the ear of the Minister of Environmental Affairs, <laughs> what, what would you say to her? Well, I... Obviously, being sponsored by Collector Can, I've got to know their company really well and their strategy. And I and I do see that uh, educating people in the um, the value that waste provides. I mean, mm. you can make an income out of it. So it's just probably educating people that waste does have a value and it's everywhere. So I think that would be a, a great way to start. And aside from what you were educating the people that you spoke to that you were doing the education, what did you learn? Because... You know, the, I think it's in South America. I think that there are a number of uh, uh, sort of initiatives whereby people, if you bring in rubbish, they get food vouchers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, these sort of exchange programs. Do you see that something like that could work here? I definitely, I definitely do. I think um, with plastic, even in the Trans Sky, I've, I saw the most amazing placemats made out of people weaving different plastic bags in different colours. I think. Just try, trying to find creative ways to use mm -hmm. waste, but definitely showing them the value and, and supporting places like Collecticad, as well as um, some of the glass initiatives as well. I, I think it was certainly it was pretty upbeat by the time you finally crossed the finishing line, but were there times, what, what was your most shocking experience? Were there times when you thought, <laughs> you know what, this is not working, we've got a crisis here in South Africa? Did it happen? Um, there was. Oh, by the time we got to the end of the Transkei, which was probably my favourite part, we crossed over onto the south coast of Natal, and that was really shocking. And well, despite having tick bite fever and it raining the whole time, <laughs> we walked that stretch. Um, we got around on the other side of the bluff. It's called Treasure Beach, and that was really, really, really shocking. Waste. Uh, waste almost as high as my knees walking through it. It was disgusting. And I, I took photos and and we um, posted a blog on it. And we actually challenged the Department of Environmental Affairs to do something about it, and then they did. Mm. They responded and they went along. So that was probably my most shocking part of the whole coastline. The, the biggest culprits being, you mentioned plastic bottles, was, was that the worst? Definitely. Mm. Um, I suppose also because every, they float and lots of other things sink and rust. But um, plastic bottles, plastic lids, marine debris, which we found, in fact, in St. Francis Bay. I'm not sure if you were aware of that story. <laughs> we um, went from Oyster Bay around to Cape St. Francis, and there's a beach there called the Wild Side. And we took photos of it because it was very, very bad. And the local residents actually were all up in arms and saying, you know, we've got so many other initiatives. We, we've got so many things on our plates. Don't point fingers at us. We're, whereas we were saying we're not blaming anyone and don't blame anyone else. Don't say it's a chocobot's problem. Don't don't pass the buck. And we went to see a school there and challenged them, and they've actually took it on, and they've cleaned up the wild side, and they've adopted that as their stretch of beach. So, yeah, that was very... 
heartwarming. You were backed by Collector Ken, who did a fine job for you. It almost feels like you need to turn around and go back again <laughs> and maybe get the, one of the plastic companies on board. Because I know. A friend of mine actually has just started... Um, He's doing, it's called the Orange River Project, I think, and it's sponsored by um, Nampax Plastic Division, as well as Plastics SA. And I think he's also seen that, like, the, the waste does end up in the rivers, which makes its way down to the coastline. And so he's trying to highlight that as well. And they are getting involved. I think Plastics SA does a brilliant job mm -hmm. trying to educate people. And Yes, there, there is so much to be done. <laughs> there is so much to be done. Michael's gone back to work. You're about to go back to work. What next? I mean, you're not going to leave the trash business alone. Are we, are we going to see a book, a movie? Are um, we going to see another expedition? We might be making a book. Um, definitely more expeditions and on the cards. I'm actually off to the south of France with my proper job, which is Chez Gourmet Cooking School. And um, got a contract there for two months. Um, but when I return, I'm looking at doing a, a trek through the Nyasa Reserve in Mozambique. Um, tr trash is one part of it, but it's also... I've, <laughs> discovered a passion for indigenous forests and preserving it and I don't think too many people are really highlighting that cause so that is on the cards that's oh, my next well, project do stay tuned because we're going to be talking to a, a lady who's written a book all about trees in fact it's called if trees could talk just lastly um uh, Camilla if it, has it changed your outlook at home do, do you find yourself obsessively <laughs> not throwing things away and recycling yes definitely it's very I even had a walk across the Parmelan this morning we were being interviewed on the Expresso show and just every little piece I see it's so difficult to walk past you, you almost it's become such a habit and I really hope that the people we've got down to our beach cleanups feel the same way I hope that you you actually physically cannot walk past a piece of trash anymore and that was the whole point of our trip so, yes, it's definitely ingrained in me. I've become a bit fanatical. Well, there have been a lot of people watching out for you guys, and I think it's been mm. really, really impressive. Thank so, you, well Nancy, done. Thank for you your for your support. Well, what you've been doing for the country is absolutely enormous. So, if anybody would like to know more, is your Facebook site yes, still up? Yes, it still so, is. And we're okay. still highlighting all different cleanups around the country, and that's Trekking for Trash. Trekking for Trash, and it's it's F-O-R, not F-O-U-R, yes. not number four, isn't it? Normal four. Trekking for Trash with uh, a normal four. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more, do, do check it out. And if you'd like to take a leaf out of their book, why don't you just do it yourself? <laughs> <laughs> walk past, uh, walk, just take a walk down the road and just pick up the trash along the way. Camilla Howard, lovely. Thank you very much. And glad you got uh, recovered from the tick bite fever. Oh, That's another you. story. Eh? Mm, it is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to, uh, you're tuned to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. And you are listening to the Enviro Show. Well, we're going to let Camilla walk out without picking up any trash along the way. And what we're going to do is uh, have a chat to Megan. Um, cheers, Camilla. Thanks very much. We're going to chat to Megan Emmett. Hi, Megan. Are you Nancy, with us? how are you? Yes, excellent, excellent. We just heard Camilla there say that she's uh, got a bit of a passion for forests. And I know that what you're, what you're doing is uh, trying to draw attention, the country's attention, to trees. Now, you've written a book called If Cre Trees Could Talk, which sounds a little bit Heishawal. Um, <laughs> just explain what you had in mind. Well, um, I think if you want to know what trees would say, if trees could talk, you're going to have to buy the book. But um, definitely we, we set out, when I say we, I, I, I mean myself and the superbly talented Shem Kampion, who took the photos for the book, to literally shed a different light on trees. So to make trees simple and sexy, which is not really a word one would associate with trees, but uh, 
trees get a bad rap and uh, they're diff- difficult to learn and people don't love them. Um, and so we wanted to go out there and do something completely different to just really bring across the essence of trees and, and help people learn them easier and just bring a, a better appreciation for trees through this book. I, I guess um, I wonder if people don't love them. I guess they they could love them if they notice them. I think a lot of us just walk down a, an avenue or walk past a tree and maybe not notice it. Perhaps. I think um, also to the unaccustomed eye, if you don't know sort of what a tree is or what to look for in order to, to tell one tree apart from another. But I think as soon as you start learning those details, one gains a, a better appreciation. And um, what we've tried to do in this book is to tell stories, both through the pictures and in words. It's not a typical book in the sense that it's not just another guide to teach you trees. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gone out there and told the stories of trees, brought out the character and the personality of trees, both through different um, bush adventures that um, I've written about in which the trees are the heroes, um, but also just through stylized photography, just telling um, stories about trees to help um, people sort of give them a character and give them a personality that they can relate to. So tell me a story about a tree. <laughs> <laughs> tell you a story about a tree. Well, so I suppose my idea came from a photograph that I have that was taken of me um, inadvertently. I, I wasn't aware it was being taken, leaning against a tree um, while sitting on a termite mound watching a herd of buffalo. And um, it was up in the northern part of, of Kruger, and it's exceedingly hot there in summer, and, and we'd been out walking and come across this herd of buffalo, and we needed to obviously get out of the way and be out of their sight. And this termite mound with the tree was the perfect place to kind of crawl into the shade and both get out of the sun and to watch the buffalo unhindered. And it was an amazing sighting, and the buffalo fed and and moved past us, and we must have sat there for an hour. And that whole experience wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for the tree under which we were sheltering. And there are so many um, of my personal bush memories that are associated with trees, whether it was um, as a, a trainee guide climbing up marula trees to wait for herds of buffalo to walk underneath us or um, something simple like uh, needing to go for a wee while you're in the bush and you you have to creep in behind some um, combrisum bushes and, and something exciting is waiting for you behind the bushes. Um, there's always um, a tree that features in every bush story. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I'm interested in the characters and personalities of trees. Of course, now you now you mention it, one is sort of thinking about, well, yes, I do suppose they do all have different characters and personalities. But um, do they do they have do they have an aura? You know, are there some trees that are more sort of, a, um, you know, people friendly than others? Um, I suppose the the giants seem to resonate with people because they're more. Um, obvious things like baobabs they stand out so much and a big majestic jackalberry leaning over a road in kruger they do tend to stand out i don't know so much about auras um and certainly this isn't a uh, a book in the sense of you know it's a it's a science-based book um where we we talk about how to identify the trees and they really are anecdotal stories but certainly some trees 
definitely stand out more than others. The scrubby little raisins and uh, bush willows that kind of fill spaces in the bush don't resonate with people. But again, I think it's just because people don't know how to tell them apart. And the reference books can be so overwhelming and they're written in this botanical language with these big words. And uh, so so very much it was a goal of this book to simplify things and, and also with very close-up, very pedantic photography to just be able to, at a glance, be able to see what a tree is. Yeah. And... Um, the descriptions have all been written in very, very plain, very layman's English, to the point of saying things like the leaf has little dots on it um, that look like the out-of-focus pixels on a TV. Um, and if you're not even inclined to read the descriptions that are describing the very obvious pictures, there's a, a section called Meg's Quick ID, which is literally bulleted points that you can glance at and go, okay, this tree's going to have forked spines. If the one I'm looking at doesn't have forked spines, then it's the wrong tree. So um, I've really tried to make it very easy for yeah, people yeah. and to point out the very distinct details that will hopefully allow people to access a world which I just find completely fascinating. Oh, absolutely, and if you can bring people into that world, what a joy. I recently went walking with a whole bunch of people who knew all about birds, and, you know, when you've got somebody else saying, oh, look, there's a mm, or an mm, it, it, you know, when yeah. you know the name of something, <laughs> it's just so nice. But now, the, yeah. if trees could talk, it's Meg's Guide to Bushveld Trees. What about... Urban trees. What about alien trees? I mean, because this, the principle on which you're talking, it would be nice if we could have it for trees across the across the country. Do you plan to have more talking tree books? <laughs> well, at this point, um, I suppose what what we did do is take a scoop right across the bushveld sector. And when I say bushveld, it includes the highveld. It includes things like. Uh, white stinkwoods, which are prevalent all over Johannesburg, for example, olive trees, which are, are very common across the country. So I really tried to take the most common species that people do encounter most regularly and look at those species. Um, alien trees, there are so many books of those on their own. Once you start getting into the world of gardening and landscaping, it's just, sure, there's just so many out there. And, and my passion really is indigenous. So from that point of view, I think you will find a lot of trees that you do come across on a day-to-day -day basis in the cities, in the book. Um, but, yeah, certainly a focus on indigenous trees. Yeah, talking of focus, just lastly, I'm looking at, I, sadly, I haven't got my hands on the book, but I'm looking at a picture of, uh, of the cover, which I imagine it's you. Yes. Is it you, yeah? <laughs> um, with your hands underneath this, this tree that's heavy with fruit. What sort of tree is that? It's a marula tree. Oh, that's a marula tree, okay. Yes, yeah, and um, they're, they're ripe marulas, which you wouldn't actually find on the tree. I've thrown them all up into the air. Um, the marulas fall onto the ground and then ripen in the ground, and it's um, hopefully that, that front picture just encapsulates what the book is all about. It's just to bring such joy and playfulness into this arena of trees. Well, it looks like you're singing to the tree or maybe the tree's singing to you or maybe you're just, just chatting <laughs> to each other. It's all very Prince Charles. I think it's supposed to be a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, lovely. It sounds like a really, really fun book. Easy enough for children? Sorry? Easy enough for children? I think so. I hmm. think um, sort of school kids definitely would be able to, to yeah, understand the language and the certainly the stories. Yeah. Uh, very easy to read short stories. Lovely, lovely, lovely. All right, my dear, I'm sure we'll talk again in your next book, and I'm sure you've got plenty more where that came from. So very best of luck. Thank you.
Take Thank care. you, Nancy. Cheers. You too. Bye. Megan Emmett, and her book is called If Trees Could Talk, and if you're a tree lover or if you're not a tree lover, it certainly sounds like it could make you do be that very thing. It's published, incidentally, by Decana, and uh, once again, If Trees Could Talk, Meg's Guide to Bushveld Trees. Well, that's it for the Enviro Show today. Uh, I'll be back again tomorrow with Otherwise. Thanks very much for the team. That's uh, Rob Parkin right now. And next up here on SAFM, it's time for some music and news from Mr. Stephen Kirker himself. Hi, Stephen.